Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in classics and ancient history at La Trobe University. This is episode CVI, the Third Servile War. When Spartacus escaped the gladiator training school, he may not have realized what he had started. What began as a simple bid for freedom soon became a cause for slaves around Italy, and he attracted thousands of followers. The Romans were forced to pay serious attention to this enemy from within, despite the fact that there was little glory to be found fighting an army of slaves. Here's Rhiannon Evans. So when Spartacus escaped from the gladiator school with the 70 others, they have to go somewhere, and the place that they go, from the accounts we have, is up Mount Vesuvius. And it's not entirely clear why they go there, but I guess it's high land. It's a place that they might be able to defend if they need to. And they're also, it seems, certainly this is what happens, gathering other people to them. So other fugitive slaves and apparently even some free farm labourers join them at this point. They start to gather more forces. They've still got very basic weapons In a way, it sort of reminds me of the story of the birth of Rome, where Romulus sets up what he calls an asylum and various vagabonds join in. This weird parallel in the accounts of Spartacus here and the foundation of Rome itself, uh, which is a bit of a paradox because, of course, these people are going to fight against Rome. Vaguely speaking, what sort of terrain are they taking then? You said the high ground on Mount Vesuvius, so it'd be very rocky, a lot of chasms a lot of places to hide, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's not very hospitable. Although, of course, remember Vesuvius, as we know it now, didn't look quite the same in 73 BCE because it exploded in 79 CE. So presumably the terrain's a little bit different now. But these are pretty tough, hardy men. They're slaves who've been working as gladiators. You presume that they can handle it. So everything about this then sounds like taking refuge then. You're not looking for a good battleground at this point. You're looking for somewhere where you can hide out for a bit and hopefully plan. Yeah, we're not sure what they're doing at this point, but that seems like a sensible account of what was going on. And it's a place that, if necessary, you can throw rocks off at people. So if they try and attack you there, then it's relatively easy to defend. But the numbers expand and uh, at some point, at least according to Plutarch, they do need to defend themselves and they need to escape. What sort of actions do the Romans take then at this point? Who do they send to, to confront or to round up Spartacus and his men? They send relatively low level people. They're all pretty much of the rank that we call praetor, which is still fairly high. It means that they do have power over an army. They're what we'd call a general. But it's not the same as sending a consul. It means that you're not taking it seriously as you would a foreign enemy. They're also not sending proper armies. They're not sending legions. So they send this series of praetors with whatever troops they can gather together. And in fact, we get slightly different accounts or at least different names in Plutarch and Appian, our two main sources. Both of them say that one man, Verinius Glaber, is sent And Plutarch says there's another one called Clodius, along with 3,000 forces who are defeated. And Appian also mentions someone called Publius Valerius. They could be confused about the names, or maybe there were three praetors sent. But certainly these sort of mid-ranking generals are sent. 
They're with scattered troops, and it's the kind of force that you'd send if there's a bit of a, a scuffle going on in a city and things have got out of hand. I don't know, it's like sending the National Guard in or something. It's not like attacking a foreign enemy. They don't regard them as an organized force. And in that, they really underestimate Spartacus. So what do we know about Spartacus's interactions with the Romans on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius? We don't know a lot of detail about the battles, but we do know that, according to Plutarch, Clodius was sent against him there, and the slaves used the vines to climb down from Vesuvius. They made ladders made out of vines, and they threw their arms down in front of them, and that way they got away from Clodius and then sort of turned around and defeated him. So there's lots of little anecdotes along the way where the slaves managed to outwit the Romans. So it's sort of slightly embarrassing for the Romans. And this is one of those. They wouldn't expect them to be ingenious like that, I suppose. We're also told about Spartacus ambushing the praetor Cosinius, danger to the Romans. Mm. Uh, and Plutarch tells us, this is a quote, that he came near seizing him as he was bathing near Selenae. Cosinius barely escaped with much difficulty, and Spartacus at once seized his baggage, pressed hard upon him in pursuit, and took his camp with great slaughter. So it's a sign of things to come. Yeah. But Romans can't be safe, they can't be off guard. So this is really humiliating him as well, I suppose, not just by nearly seizing him, but seizing him while he's bathing. Yeah, that and, makes it worse. And stealing his suitcase. <laughs> seizing his baggage and getting him when he's presumably naked. Yes. So he's, he really can't defend himself. Why wasn't that in the movie? Where was that scene? Well, the nudity was difficult enough for the, <laughs> them to get through the movie. I think there were already questions being asked. We also hear that Verinius, when he's defeated, comes very near to being killed himself. His horse is actually cut from under him. And Plutarch's really quite shocked at this because this is how close a praetor of the Roman army came to being killed by this just this small band of slaves. Mm. Another example of this comes from Sallust and Spartacus is supposed to have used an ingenious trick to sneak away at night. So the Romans sort of think we're going to get up and fight the slave army in the morning. And they can see that the slaves are encamped. But in fact, when they get up in the morning and move towards them, they find the slaves don't move. And this is because Spartacus has taken dead bodies and sort of propped them up with sticks and left them there. In that way that if you want to sneak out of your bed at night, you kind of create a model of your body out of balloons or bits of clothing and climb out the window, you know, in, well, at least in the teen movies I've seen. Spartacus creates this appearance that the slaves are still there although rather grotesquely using dead bodies. But they'd actually snuck away so that they can have a surprise attack on Verinius and his army. Now, this is only told in Sallust, and the bit of Sallust that we have here, in fact, all the bits of Sallust that we have from his histories, is fragmentary. And it doesn't occur in any of the other sources. And this represents one of our issues with looking at Spartacus. The sources all seem to say different things. So, as I say, this only comes up in this one source and we're lucky to have it. And we don't really get told the outcome of it because then Salus breaks off because it's fragmentary. Mm. So that's quite frustrating. It does kind of show, though, that his tactics or the tactics of the slaves or the former gladiators are very much on the deceptive side, on the subterfuge. They aren't seeking right out combat at this point. They aren't at this point, And it sort of fits in partly with the stereotype that the Romans have of slaves, that they will deceive you. But also, perhaps I think more interestingly, 
with what Roman slaves probably had to do, what they had to be like. They had to learn to be clever, to be ingenious in order to get around some of the worse behavior that would be meted out to them. So, you know, if the difference between getting a small punishment or really getting beaten up is that you tell a lie, then you learn to tell lies. You would in the slave's position. And I think this is an extension of that, that they've actually learned these ways of subterfuge. And now they're putting them into practice on a much bigger scale with a Roman army as the, the people who might beat up on them. So if I've got a horde of escaped slaves and gladiators, Rome would be the last place that I'd want to be. Generally, Italy is the worst place to probably have them. It's hard to know what Spartacus is thinking at this point and what his motives are, but what could his intentions be? It is hard to know, and this is partly because it looks from the sources like he changes his mind a lot. They don't actually tell us that, but he seems to be moving in different directions at different times. So the geography of Italy is quite important here. Remember, he's in southern Italy, and he's sort of trapped there unless he can get across on the sea or he can get out of Italy to the north. Past Rome. Exactly. Rome's kind of in the middle. Yeah. And according to our sources at this point... It looks like he's trying to head north. He's going up the Apennines, run down the, the centre of Italy, and he's going through them on high ground, which is safer but harder, to the Alps, which had been called the Wall of Italy, the defence point. If he can get over the Alps, then he's probably going to be safe. He'll get to Gaul. And that's where he seems to be heading. Plutarch says at this point, again quoting, Spartacus was soon great and formidable, but he took a proper view of the situation, and since he could not expect to overcome Roman power, began to lead his army towards the Alps, thinking it was necessary for them to cross the mountains and go to their respective homes, some to Thrace, some to Gaul. But his men were now strong in numbers and full of confidence and would not listen to him, but went ravaging over Italy. Mm. So it sounds like he, he really didn't want to fight. He just wanted to get back home to Thrace. This is the passage that's often brought up when people want to counter any suggestion that Spartacus was there for liberty, overthrowing the, the system, as yeah. it were. He's not a freedom fighter. He wants to get out and for the people around him to get out. He doesn't think he can defeat the Romans. He actually, and maybe this is why Plutarch calls him wise, he doesn't come into this thinking, I can take on Rome. Yes. He comes into it thinking, I can win a few skirmishes and escape. And I guess... The trajectory of the narrative, given that, spoiler alert, he doesn't live at the end of this narrative, mm. all right, he gets defeated eventually, was if his followers had followed him here and just all gone back to their homes, maybe they'd all escaped with their lives. Yeah, so tragic hero at that point. Mm. But he's also gathering more men at this point because he's defeated Roman armies or Roman soldiers. So that makes him immensely popular. And Appian tells us he's got 70,000 men. If you think he started off with 70, mm. he's now got a thousand times what he started with. While the sources don't go into this, one can imagine that the temptation is, I've now got this huge band of men here. I could actually turn around and defeat a Roman army. And I sort of get the impression that Spartacus almost starts to internalize the Roman perspective that defeating another army brings you glory. Now, we're not told that. We're not told whether he was uh, an arrogant or uh, you know, somebody who wanted to accumulate glory for himself. But that might explain why he does at some points turn around to face Roman armies. 
So Plutarch gives us the point of view of the Romans. He says it was now no longer the indignity and disgrace of the revolt that harassed the Senate, but they were constrained by their fear and peril to send both consuls into the field, as they would to a war of the utmost difficulty and magnitude. So this is a sign that there's real fear in the Senate, Mm. that it's not just an embarrassment that a slave and his gang have managed to overcome a few Roman officials. They're really scared he's going to get to Rome. But they also seem to be trying to keep it quiet as well. There's references to that later on in Plutarch where the Senate's trying to hush it up. They're trying to send the formidable men out there as well, but they're trying to keep it quiet who they're fighting. Yeah, it doesn't look good for them. It's not something you can hold a triumph about. So both consuls are not getting much out of this. Plus a cameo by a famous Roman. (laughs) Yeah, well, it'd be nice if we knew for certain, but yes. And what does it do to the psychology of Cassius? Yeah, yeah. His father having lost such a, a battle in an ignominious fashion. So he's gone past Rome with all his men. It must have been sorely tempting just to go, have I got quite enough men to take on Rome? Well, at this point, and explicitly later on, we're told, when he really thinks about going towards Rome, he starts to doubt himself. He hasn't got any cities behind him. So there's an element, you know, Rome is still, it's still a difficult thing to take on. And Spartacus seems to to have that experience, that self-doubt when he thinks about that. So I think he's being torn two different ways here. And you can imagine that there's also disagreement amongst this gang that's gathered around him. They haven't all necessarily got the same motivations. There's been a long-standing disagreement amongst ancient historians as to whether he's fighting for the end of slavery, which I think is very unlikely. Is he fighting just to get away or is he fighting for the spoils of war and the honour that comes with it? I think that probably all of those motives were going on amongst uh, the people who gathered around him and they probably disagreed. And also, if you, I suppose, if you want to take on Rome or if you want to be any serious threat, you start taking over territory and fortifying it, whereas he keeps his armed forces very mobile. And he <laughs> seems to be always on the move with Romans following him. Yeah, in that sense, they're more like kind of smash and grab brigands. He's trained them up to be very professional. If you can face a Roman army, and he will after this face actual legions, then you've got a well-trained band of people. But he doesn't have that base. He doesn't have the place from which he can always draw supplies and maybe additional troops. It makes it very impressive that Spartacus manages to make this last for nearly three years. Three years. From 73 to 71. It's more than two years that he's facing Roman armies. Yeah, So Spartacus is at this point, whether the Romans like it or not, is a definite threat. So do they up the ante? Absolutely. They send in the highest people they can find, and that is the consuls. There are two consuls each year. Both of them get sent against him. Wow, both of them. Both of them. Not just one, which would be quite common, but they both get sent in with two legions. So proper professional Roman troops, not just some stragglers that they've managed to gather together. And actually, this is in some ways effective. Spartacus has two sort of sub-generals, Oinomaeus and Crixus, and one of the consuls defeats Crixus almost immediately. Got about 30,000 troops with him, actually kills two-thirds of Crixus's troops. So that's 20,000 slaves that are killed and kills Crixus himself. So this must have looked good for the Romans. Mm. And then because there are two consuls with an army each, they actually come at Spartacus in a pincer movement. 
So Spartacus and his troops should be trapped between the two of them. Spartacus turns around and defeats them both. Wow. So this is a serious army that he's got together now. And he's obviously quite angry at this point because he takes 300 Roman prisoners and sacrifices them to Crixus, his defeated, dead co-general. And this is pretty serious. Sacrificing humans is not considered the behavior of civilized people. Whereas the Romans might well have killed off prisoners, this is described as something that's almost, you know, sacred and, and doing it kind of in the memory of a particular figure who's fought with him. It at least shows us, I think, that it looks like there's a very strong brotherhood, a very strong connection between Spartacus and his fellow fighters. So prior to this, it seemed to be that Spartacus and his men were intent on leaving Italy, getting away from Rome getting away from being slaves, and now they've had their massive victory, that must have had an influence on what decisions they made next and also must have really scared the Romans because this is the best of the best that has been defeated. Well, this is terrifying to the Romans because this is two consuls being defeated and it's very close at hand, as you say. Again, if you remember, this is the third slave war. The other two had been contained in Sicily. This is on the mainland. This is close to Rome. And it also seems to have affected Spartacus because it's at this point that Appian mentions that he thinks about attacking Rome specifically. But he still says Spartacus didn't quite feel ready. He wants to do it, but he's worried, and Appian has a great quote, he's worried that no city has come to him and also that his troops are only slaves, deserters, and riffraff. Mm. So even though he's managed to defeat two consuls and two legions, he still seems to have this self-doubt that says, oh, but can I actually invade Rome itself? So no matter what his intentions were before Rome, the, the sources tell us that he does move south at this point and he begins to at least try to fortify a position and make it safer. He hasn't got any cities that have come over to him, but he does take a city. He takes a city called Thurii, which was an old Greek city in southern Italy, and he sort of makes that a base, you could say. Certainly he's getting supplies there. He gets metals, he gets iron and bronze, and Appian is very clear to tell us that he doesn't just take it, he actually pays for it. Presumably he pays for it with the spoils that he's stolen from the battlefield, but that would have been a standard Roman thing to do as well. And that's actually something that comes up along the line of both Plutarch, particularly Appian, to make clear that while Spartacus is a slave and he started this rebellion, the way he acts is often quite upright and moral, sometimes quite brutal, but he doesn't just take advantage and um, he's not in favour of the kind of rampaging and just taking from the ordinary people everything you can just because you've got power and you've got weapons in your hands. So he's got this place where he can at least get supplies this, however, isn't where he's going to stay, and it's not a permanent solution. So Spartacus needs to either go north or south as the Romans are going to come for him again. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or your local friendly neighbourhood podcatching service. Please leave a review. They are appreciated. They help us feel appreciated. You can like The Emperors of Rome on Facebook and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans and I am at Nightlife Guy. 
In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, Spartacus's last stand against overwhelming odds. And as time goes on, the myth becomes greater than the man. To cliche, we'll go with it. So until then, I'm Matt Smith. No, I'm Matt Smith. No, I'm Matt Smith. I'm Matt Smith. Ah, uh, I don't really want to be Matt Smith. Uh, look guys, we can all be Matt Smith, and you have all been fantastic, okay? Yeah, okay. Fine, yeah, sounds fine, okay. Fine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>